Section 18 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. Song Literature of a Romantic Period, Part 1. Song in the modern sense, the German word Lied expresses it, is peculiarly a phenomenon of the 19th century. In the preceding centuries it can hardly be said to have claimed the attention of composers. Vocal solos of many sorts they had, of course, been, but they were of one or another formal type and are sharply to be contrasted with the song of Schubert, Schumann and Franz. If a prophet and theorist of the year 1800, foreknowing what was to be the spirit of a romantic age, had sketched out an ideal art form for the perfect expression of that spirit, he would surely have hit upon the song. The fact that song was not composed in the 17th and 18th centuries proves how predominantly formal and how little expressive in purpose the music of that time was. It is strange how little of a lyrical quality, in the poet's sense of a term, there was in the music of the 18th century. The lyric is that form of poetry which expresses individual emotion. It is thus sharply to be contrasted in spirit with all other forms, the epic, which tells a long and heroic story, the narrative, which tells a shorter and more special story, the dramatic, which pictures the characters as acting, the satiric, the didactic, and the other forms of more or less objective intent. No less is the lyric to be contrasted with the other types in point of form. For whereas the epic, the dramatic, and the rest can add detail upon detail at great length and lives by its quantity of good things, the lyric stands or falls at the first blow. Either it transmits to the reader the emotion it seeks to express, or it does not. And if it does not, then the longer it continues, the greater bore it becomes. For all the forms of objective poetry can get their effect by reproducing objective details in abundance. But to transmit an emotion, one must somehow get at the heart of it, by means of a suggestive word or phrase or of a picture that instantly evokes an emotional experience. The accuracy of the lyrical expression depends upon selecting just the right details and omitting all the rest. Thus the lyric must necessarily be short, while most of the other poetic forms can be indefinitely extended. And besides, an emotion usually lasts in its purity only for a moment. You divine it the instant it is with you, or you have lost it. It cannot be prolonged by conscious effort. It cannot be recalled by thinking about it. The expression of it will therefore last but for a moment. It must be caught on the wing. And the power so to catch an emotion is a very special power. Few poets have had it in the highest degree. Those who have had it, such as Burns, Goethe or Heine, can, in a dozen lines or so, take their place beside the greatest poets of all time. The special beauty of My love is like a red, red rose, or Der du von dem Himmel bist, or Du bist wie eine Blume, is as far removed from that of a longer poem, Say il penseroso, or Swinburne's Hymn to Man, as a tiny painting by Vermeer is from a canvas by Veronese. Emotional expression, of course, exists in many types of poetry, but it cannot be sustained and hence is only a sort of recurrent byproduct. The lyric is distinguished by the fact that in it individual emotional expression is the single and unique aim. 
This lyric spirit is obviously seldom to be found in the art music of the 18th century. It is not too much to say that music in that age was regarded as dignified in proportion to its length. The clavichord pieces of Rameau or Couperin were hardly more than after-dinner amusements, and the fugues and preludes of Bach, for all the depth of the emotion in them and despite their flexible form, were primarily technical exercises. The best creative genius of the latter half of the century was expended upon the larger forms, the symphony, the oratorio, the opera, the mass. All the qualities which are peculiar to the lyric and poetry we find in the song, the lead of the 19th century. A definition or description of the one could be applied almost verbatim to the other. The lyric song must be brief, emotional, direct. Like the lyric poem, it cannot waste a single measure. It must create its mood instantly. It is personal. It seeks not to picture the emotion in general, but the particular emotion experienced by a certain individual. It is unique. No two experiences are quite alike, and no two songs accurately expressive of individual experiences can be alike. It is sensuous. Emotions are felt, not understood, and the song must set the hearer's soul in vibration. It is intimate. One does not tell one's personal emotions to a crowd, and the true song gives each hearer the sense that he is the sole confidant of the singer. Musical architecture, in the older sense, has very little to do with this problem. Individual expression goes its own way, and the music must accommodate itself to the form of the text. Abundance of riches is only, in a limited way, a virtue in a good song. The great virtue is to select just the right phrase to express the particular mood. Fine sensibilities are needed to appreciate a good song, for the song is a personal confession, and one can understand a friend's confession only if one has sensitive heartstrings. Thus, the song was peculiarly fitted to express a large part of the spirit of a romantic period. This period, which appreciated the individual more than any other age since the time of Pericles, with a possible exception of the Italian Renaissance, which sought to make the form subsidiary to the sense, which sought to get at the inner reality of men's feelings, which longed for sensation and experience above all other things, this period expressed itself in a burst of spontaneous song as truly as the drama expressed Elizabethan England or the opera expressed 18th century Italy. Lyrical song begins with Schubert. Before him, there was no standard of that form, which he brought almost instantaneously to perfection. It is hard for us to realize how little respect the 18th century composer had for the short song. His attitude was not greatly unlike the attitude of modern poets towards the limerick. Gluck set his hand to a few indifferent tunes in the song form, and Haydn and Mozart tossed off a handful, most of which are mediocre. These men simply did not consider the song worthy of the best efforts of a creative artist. If we take a somewhat broader definition of the word song, we find that it has been a part of music from the beginning. Folk song, beginning in the prehistoric age of music, has kept pretty much to itself until recent times and has had a development parallel with art music. From time to time it has served as a reservoir for this art music, opening its treasures richly when the conscious music makers had run dry. Thus it was in the time of the troubadours and the trouvères, themselves only go-betweens, who took the songs of a people and gave them currency in fashionable secular and church music. So it was again in the time of Luther, who used the familiar melodies of his time to build up his congregational chorales, a great part of the basis of German music from that day to this. 
So it was again in the time of Schubert, who enjoyed nothing better than walking to country merrymakings to hear the country people sing their songs of a holiday. And so it has been again in our own day, when national schools, Russian, Spanish, Scandinavian and the rest, are flourishing on the treasures of their folk songs. And when we say that song began with Schubert, we must not forget that long before him, though almost unrecognized, there existed songs among the people as perfect and as expressive as any that composers have ever been able to invent. But these songs are constructed in the traditional verse form and are, therefore, very different from most of the art songs of the 19th century, which are detailed and highly flexible. Of the songs composed before the time of Schubert, mostly by otherwise undistinguished men, the greater part were in the simple form and style of a folk song. A second element in pre-Schubertian song was the chorale. The Geistliche Lieder, spiritual songs of J.S. Bach, were nothing but chorales for solo voice, and the spirit and harmonic character of a chorale, little cultivated in romantic song, are to be found in a good part of the song literature of the 18th century. A third element in 18th century song was the da capo aria of the opera or oratorio. Many detached lyrics were written in this form, or even to resemble the more highly developed sonata form, as for instance Haydn's charming My Mother Bids Me Bind My Hair, which is otherwise as expressive and appropriate a lyric as one could ask for. The effect of such an artificial structure on the most intimate and delicate of art forms was in most cases deadly, and songs of this type were little more than oratorio arias out of place. It will be seen that each of these sorts of song has some structural form to distinguish it. The folk song, which must be easy for untechnical persons to memorize, naturally is cast in the strophic form, that is, one in which the melody is a group of balanced phrases, generally four, eight, or sixteen, used without change for all the stanzas of the song. The chorale or hymn tune is much the same, being derived from a folk song and differing chiefly in its more solid harmonic accompaniment, and the da capo aria is distinguished and defined by its formal peculiarity. Now it is evident that for free and detailed musical expression, the melody must be allowed to take its form from the words, and that none of these three traditional forms can be allowed to control the musical structure, and the lead of the 19th century is chiefly distinguished, at least as regards externals, by this freedom of form. Such a song, following no traditional structure, but answering to the peculiarities of a text throughout, is the Durchkomponiertes Lied, or song, that is, composed all the way through, which Schubert established once and for all as an art type. But in its heart of hearts, the art song at its best remains an own cousin to the folk song. This art, the mother of art and the fountain of youth to all arts that are senescent, takes what is typical, what is common to all men, casts it into a form which is intelligible to all men, and passes through a thousand pairs of lips, and a thousand improvements, until it has passed the power of men further to perfect it. Its range of subject is as wide as life itself, only it chooses not what is individual and peculiar, but what is universal and typical. It has a matchless power for choosing the expressive detail and the dramatic moment. An emotion which shakes nations it can concentrate into a few burning lines, it is never conscious that it is great art. It takes no thought for the means. It is only interested in expressing its message as powerfully and as simply as possible. In doing this, it hits upon the phrases that are at the foundation of our musical system, at the cadences which block in musical architecture upon the structure from which all conscious forms are derived. 
This popular art, as we have said, has revivified music again and again. It was the soul of a Lutheran chorale which, the papist sneeringly said, was the chief asset of a Reformation since it furnished the sensuous form under which religion took its place in the hearts of the people. It is the foundation of Johann Sebastian Bach's music from beginning to end, and it is therefore the foundation of a work of Bach's most famous son, Karl Philipp Emanuel Bach, from whom the art song takes its rise. In the 50s, he published the several editions of his melodies to the spiritual songs of Christian Fürchtegott Gellert. These may be taken as the beginning of modern song. In his preface, Bach shows the keenness of his understanding, stating in theory the problem which Schubert solved in practice. He says that he has endeavoured to invent, in each case, the melody which will express the spirit of a whole poem, and not, as had been the custom, merely that which accords with a first stanza. In other words, he recognises the incongruity of expecting one tune to express the varying moods of several dissimilar stanzas. His solution was to strike a general average among the stanzas and suit his tune to it. Schubert solved the problem by composing his music continuously to suit each stanza line and phrase. In other words, by establishing the durchkomponiertes Lied, the modern art song. Philipp Emanuel Bach thus saw that the lead should do what the folk song and the formal aria could not do. It is a nice question whether the conscious durchkomponiertes lead is more truly expressive than the strophic folk song. Mr. Henderson, in his book Songs and Songwriters, illustrates the problem by comparing Silcher's well-known version of Heine's Die Lorelei with Liszt's. Silcher's eight-line tune has become a true folk song. It keeps an unvarying form and tune through three double stanzas, using, to express the lively action of the end, the same music that expresses the natural beauty of the beginning. Liszt, on the other hand, with masterful imaginative precision, follows each detail of the picture and action in his music. Mr. Henderson concludes that he would not give Liszt's setting for a dozen of Silcher's, some of us, however, would willingly give the whole body of Liszt's music for a dozen folk tunes like Silcher's. It is, of course, a matter of individual preference. But we should give an understanding heart to the method of a folk song, which offers to the poem a formal frame of great beauty, binding the whole together in one mood, while it allows the subsidiary details to play freely, and perhaps the more effectually, by contrast with the dominant tone. Whatever may be one's final decision in the matter, a study and comparison of the two settings will make evident the typical qualities of the folk song and art song as nothing else could. Emmanuel Bach also showed his feeling for the lyrical quality of the lead by apologising, between the lines, for his poems, saying that, although the didactic is not the sort of poetry best suited to musical treatment, Gellert's fine verses justified the procedure in his case. There is in the melodies, as we have said, something of a feeling of a folk song and of a Lutheran chorale, and there is also in them an indefinable quality which, in a curious way, looks forward to the free melodic expression of Schubert. Throughout the 18th century, the chief representative of pure German song was the Singspiel, or light and imaginative dramatic entertainment with songs and choruses interspersed with spoken dialogue. The Singspiel was not a highly honoured form of art. It held a place somewhat analogous to the vaudeville among us, that is, loved by the people but regarded as below the dignity of a first-class musician, Italian opera being a la mode. 
Nevertheless, we find some excellent light music among these Singspiele. Reichardt's Elvin und Elmira, to Goethe's text, contains numbers which, in simple charm and finish of workmanship, do not fall far below Mozart. These Singspiele maintained the German spirit in song in the face of the Italian tradition until Weber came and made the tinder blaze in the face of all Europe. Reichardt felt the spirit of the time. He was one of those valuable men who make things move while they are living and are forgotten after they are dead. As Kapellmeister under Frederick the Great, he introduced reforms which made him unpopular among the conservative spirits. His open sympathy with the principles of the French Revolution led to his dismissal from his official post. From such a man we should expect exactly what we find, an admiration for folk songs and an insistence that art songs should be founded on them. He was widely popular and had a considerable influence on his time. He was thus a power in keeping German song true to the best German traditions until the time when Schubert raised it to the first rank. Reichardt was also the first to make a specialty of Goethe's songs, having set some 125 of them. Zelter, likewise, was best known in his time for his settings of Goethe's lyrics, and the poet preferred them to those of Schubert. This fact need not excite such indignation as is sometimes raised in reference to it, for Goethe was little of a musician. Zelter kept true to the popular tradition, and some of his songs are still sung by the German students. Zumsteg was another important composer of the time, the first important composer of ballads, and a favourite with Schubert, who based his early style on him. Historically, the songs of Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven are of less importance than those of the composers just named. Haydn's are predominantly instrumental in character. Mozart was much more of a poet for the voice and has to his credit at least one song, The Violet, a true durchkomponiertes Lied, which can take its place beside the best in German song literature. Beethoven's songs are often no more than musical routine. His early Adelaide, a sentimental scene in the Italian style, is his best known, but his setting to Gellert's The Heavens Declare the Glory of the Eternal is by far the finest. Except that it is a little stiff in its grandeur, it would be one of the noblest of German songs. Yet Beethoven's place in the history of song rests chiefly upon the fact that he was one of the first to compose a true song cycle having poetical and musical unity. In some ways he anticipated Schumann's practices. End of section 18.